Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to continue on our study. We're going to begin to get into answering the question. We've talked around it. We've talked about the question. We've talked about why the question is important. We've talked about how the answer comes. But we haven't really yet ventured into the answer. And the question is here in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, the Son of Man am? So then they said to him, Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked them the question of the ages, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered him and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that Jesus was the Christ. We've talked about the question. We've talked about that it's the question of the ages. It's the question every one of us has to answer. Talked about the answer that Peter gave. And we talked about the fact that it's the right answer because Jesus said, my father revealed that to you. So we saw in there that the answer comes by revelation. Not by your being so smart or my being so smart or by having 15 concordances and study. That all helps with the revelation but that's not how the revelation comes. And then he said, Peter, you are, I'm going to change your name to Petros, rock, which means a tiny pebble. And on this rock, which is a different word, which means a large foundation, I will build my church. And we talked about the fact that the foundation of the church is not Peter. The foundation of the church is the revelation of who he is. Because the revelation of who he is changes you. We talked about different men. We looked at Moses. We looked at Abraham. We looked at, uh, at, at, um, at um, uh, Paul. We looked at Isaiah. We saw men of God, and there are women we could have talked about too, men of God that were changed in a moment's time by a revelation of who this God is. And we talked about that's what we need. We spent that time on it because the answer, the words that communicate the answer are words we all know. So if I handed out a slip of paper to every one of you and I asked you, who is Jesus? You're going to give a right answer in there somewhere. We talked about the fact that this answer that he gave, which is, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he didn't say thou art the Savior, thou art our Redeemer, thou art our Healer. And we talked about why he didn't say that, because that's what he does and that's what he's done. That's not who he is. So we're looking for who he is, not what he's done for us. And as you get a deeper revelation of who he is, you're better able to receive what he's done for you. And so that's what we're after. That's what I believe the Spirit of God is drawing us to because in the process of that revelation, that what happens is it begins to change you. I've begun to read a book. It was, I was talking with Neil Guest. Some of you know who he is. Some of you don't remember who he is because you haven't been here long enough. He passes his love on to you. He's, he's been here for a number of years and then uh, two years ago he had a stroke and uh, he's just about fully recovered from it. So I talk to him about once a month and he sends his love to you. But he was sharing with me about a book. I, I, got, I downloaded it online and started reading it. And it opens up by saying what changes your life is a revelation of who God is. 
And I said, yeah, okay. We're on the right track. And so we've talked at that, and we've looked at then last time, we looked at, at what Jesus goes on to say, and I give you the keys of the kingdom. This is all one discussion. And we saw that the keys of the kingdom represent his authority. And he, he gives us a discussion of what the keys of the kingdom are. He said, because what, now whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I explained to you what those verses literally say in the original languages. What you bind on earth will be as if it's already been bound in heaven. And what you loose on earth will be as if it's already been loosed in heaven. In other words, we've been given authority within the boundaries of God's will, and within the boundaries of that will, whatever you, whatever you say will go. You have that authority as a child of God. And we went back and looked at a clear example of that was, is, was Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, which is the story of the centurion. And the centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant is lying at home, deeply suffering. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion says, no, you don't need to do that. Because all you've got to do is say the word here, and my servant will be healed there. In other words, I recognize the authority of your word here. And then he gave the explanation of how he understands that. Because he says, I recognize that you are also a man under authority. We talked about that little word also, how important it is, because the word also means I recognize that just as I am, as a Roman officer, somebody who's under authority, I recognize that you are also, Jesus, someone who's under authority. So I recognize that your authority comes because from the one who's, who you are under. We talked about the fact that why the church has struggled so much with exercising the authority we've been given is either because it's ignorant of the authority and doesn't believe we have the authority. That's something that passed with the disciples and with the apostles. Of course, we're disciples, aren't we? That's right. Four of you are. Okay, that's good. <laughs> okay. And so, and he says to his disciples, the works that I do shall you do also in greater works than I oh, yeah. do. So, well, that was just for the disciples. Then we've got to take out some other things because they must have just been for the disciples. Like, I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send the Helper, the Holy Ghost. So that must have been just for the disciples also. But obviously it wasn't. So the authority wasn't just for the disciples. Because you see, the work of the church hasn't ended. But the key is either we are ignorant of His authority or we know about His authority, but we don't recognize its purpose that that authority only flows as we're under his authority. And I used the example of my garden hose, that I was out trying to spray flowers. The problem was I hadn't hooked the hose up to the faucet. So I can have the best nozzle in the world. I can confess over that nozzle that, these, that the water's coming, water's coming, the water's spraying. I believe I've got water coming out of here, and I can do that until Jesus comes back, and there's no water coming out the other end because... The hose isn't connected to the source. See, you and I are just a conduit for the authority of the head of the church. So we got to be connected under his authority so that it can flow out of us. So we have to be, first of all, someone under authority. Let's put it this way. Whatever authority you're under is what will flow through you. I may take a little sidetrack here. Whatever, whatever faucets you hook your hose up to will determine what flows out of it. Now down in the, in, the, in the mansions in Newport, if you've ever been through, it's at least the biggest one, the breakers, 
amazing thing in there. You go into one of the bathrooms in one of the tours, and it has four faucets in, every, in the tub and in the sink. It has hot and cold fresh water and hot and cold salt water. So if you go to hook the garden hose up there to, splay, to, to spray the, the roses, you better be sure you know which one of those, which, what's coming out of the faucet you've connected it to. Because if you connect it to a saltwater faucet, you're going to, well, Link had an experience with this because he has a boat and his boat runs on gasoline. If you put the wrong nozzle in the gasoline tank, you get diesel fuel. And it doesn't run on diesel fuel, does it, Link? He didn't do it. <laughs> you better know what the other end of the hose is connected to because that'll determine what flows out of the hose. You better know what authority you're under because that will determine what authority, whose authority is coming out of you. And you're under some authority. Because there are really only two out there. If you look back and study your Bible, there's the authority of the kingdom of God and there's the authority of the kingdom of Satan. And you can unwittingly be working under his authority. Because if you're not under God's authority, you're most likely under his authority and not knowing it. All right, we've got to move on. That was uncomfortable enough as it was. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's look at the answer. The answer that Jesus, Peter gave to Jesus. Verse 16, Simon answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Turn with me to John chapter 20. And verse 30. The Apostle John is at the end of this letter, write his book, his letter, which is what he's wrote. And he writes these words, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. In other words, there are many other things Jesus did, but out of all the things Jesus did, I specifically chosen these for a purpose. And the purpose is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Isn't it interesting? He said the same two things that Peter revealed. That you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that, that you might have life. So we're going to begin to look at this answer. We're going to look at, begin to look at the first answer today, that you are the Christ. Now, we know that term, we use that term, but I want to settle down into it a little bit and examine exactly what God is saying, because remember, God is speaking to Peter this term. This man that's standing next to you, God's saying, is the Christ. And if you get a CD, you'll see the title of the message today is, He is the, all uppercase, Christ. The word thee is just as important as Christ in what God said here. Now we've got to be careful because 
Anytime we're using terms or talking about a, a term or an expression that we're all very used to, when I say Christ, every one of you has a picture somewhere in your mind of what that means to you. But we want to come to the point where we're talking about what it means to God because it's God's revelation that we're looking for. So Christ, first of all, let me explain to you, is not Jesus' last name. I say that because some people may not know that, or we may know it, but we talk about him that term. Jesus isn't his first name, and Christ is not his last name. It's a title. And that's what we're going to begin to talk about today. The word Christ is the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. The Old Testament equivalent is the Hebrew word Meshua, which in English is translated Messiah. And that word literally means both in the Greek, which is the New Testament term, and in the Hebrew, which is the Old Testament term, it literally means to smear something on someone. When they would appoint somebody to be a priest, when Aaron was called by God to be a priest in the tabernacle, after all the garments were, were made and all the building was, the tent was constructed and all the implements were made, before God's presence came to dwell in that place, the priests were gathered together and they went through a ceremony of anointing. And literally what God instructed Moses to do was to dump oil on their head, although that really wasn't what he meant, to pour oil over their head. And it was called a holy anointing oil. It was an oil that had special fragrances in it and special ingredients in it. It was just oil, but it represented something. Oil in the Bible often represents anointing. So it's not just the smearing, it's what you're smeared with. And so I want to talk to you, first of all, since the word Christ or Messiah is communicating anointed. This is the one anointed by God. What does that mean? Let's bring it down to what it means to us practically. Well, it means essentially this. There's three aspects to it. The first is that it means it is someone that has been appointed by someone else. Someone that has been appointed by someone else. So the first thing we know, if somebody was anointed to be a priest, they were appointed by someone for that capacity. So in Aaron's case, God appointed Aaron to be the high priest. Second thing we need to know is that they're appointed for a purpose. God doesn't just appoint for the, to appoint. And there's a real lesson in this. Because God doesn't call you or appoint you for some ministry position just so you can have a title. title is what aids you in carrying out your purpose because it helps people identify what your purpose is. My identity better not come from the fact that I'm a pastor. My identity comes from the fact that I'm a child of God. Pastor just describes my function, my purpose, one of my purposes. I'm also a husband. I'm also a father. Those are other purposes that I have. But to be anointed means that somebody, and in this case God, has appointed you or chosen you to carry out a specific purpose. 
And then the third element is that he then gives you his ability and authority to carry out that purpose. If you've been through spiritual authority here in, 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 at Faith Christian Center, you've discovered that the Bible teaches that authority is only a tool to carry out a responsibility. So first of all, God assigns a responsibility, then he gives you authority to carry out that responsibility. And the limits of your authority are determined by the limits of your responsibility. So I don't have the right from God to boss your life around. I don't have the right to go into your house and tell you, you know, you should wear this tie and you should, you know, do this and do that because I, that's outside the authority that God has given to me because it's outside the responsibility that he's given to me. And so the way to know what the, edge of, what the boundaries of responsibility, are, of authority are, is to find out what are, the, what are the boundaries of your responsibility. And every time you hear authority or title or something like that, you need to translate that in your mind to, all right, what's their responsibility? What's my responsibility? So those are the three basic elements that, that make up the anointing or an, uh, uh, to be anointed. Now, as, let's, go, let's go to John chapter 1. Because we want to go back now and, and look in context at, at this statement that, that Peter has made in the presence of these other disciples. They had heard this term before. In fact, they were eagerly waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And I started doing some research yesterday and going back and pulling out all kinds of scriptures and I finally realized I don't think that was not the sense of where we were to go. But the Old Testament is filled with references of the coming of a Messiah, a deliverer. But I just want to show you this little scene which gives us a picture of it. It's in John chapter uh, 1. We'll look in verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his, John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples, looking at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak. Those are John's disciples. Heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, seeing them following, and said to them, Who do you seek? Notice he's always asking questions. They said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, which is translated teacher. So that's their understanding of who he is right now. You're a teacher. Where are you staying? And he said, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. So they stayed with him all day. One of them who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So the same Peter that we've been talking about, to whom God gave the revelation of who this of who this man is. This same, his brother Andrew, uh, verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. In other words, he spent time with him, realized there was something about him and saying, I think we found him. But that tells me they were looking for him. Every generation of Jew was expecting that maybe they were going to be the generation that would see the Messiah. If you go back into the gospel accounts, one of them talks about a man named Simeon, who was an old man in a synagogue where Jesus was, was, was raised. And when they brought Jesus as a little baby in, 
to be circumcised and to go through that, go through that process. By the Spirit, Simeon knew that this was he. And he basically says, now I can die a happy man. Uh, see, we kind of sit around like, you know, bumps on a log. This was their heart's desire for a devout Jew. They knew he was coming. Now, many of them hoped he was coming to deliver them from the bondage of, Israel, of, of, of Rome. But they knew there was a promised Messiah. So there was an expectancy. So as we were to look, if we were to look back at the questions that we looked at the very beginning and all the different people that were asking the questions, one of the questions that was going around is, is he the one? Is he the one? Because they were expecting the Messiah to come, the anointed one to come and to deliver them. They may not have all understood what he was coming for, but there was an expectancy. And now Andrew says to Peter, Maybe he's it. Maybe he's it. Some of the other uh, in go of the gospel accounts, you'll see them debating and say, well, I don't think he could be it because it, I don't see where he was, that says the Messiah was to be born where he came from because they thought he was born in Nazareth. And, and so, so, but there's this, this expectation, this speculation going on. So when Peter finally says, under the anointing of the Spirit of God, Thou art the Christ. It was a confirmation of something they were hoping. In other words, they were expecting the Messiah to come at some point. And now what's being said is, I am he. I am he. Okay. Now, and what I'm about to share with you is what kind of dropped in me yesterday all at once. The Jews understood something about God because they understood their heritage. To us, it's the Old Testament. And it's good to study the Old Testament because the Old Testament gives you this background. Our, our salvation and who we are in Christ and all the benefits that we have are in the New Testament, but the background that gives you perspective is from the Old Testament. And so if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see there's a pattern of how God worked with man and a pattern of how God uh, delivered people that he cared for. And it starts with Abraham. Abraham was a man that God chose. He lived in, a, in, in what is essentially now Iraq. And he lived in a, in a ta city called Ur, H-U-R. And he was a moon worshiper. They weren't believers in Jehovah, never heard of Jehovah. The moon never spoke to him. And Jehovah God, the living God, spoke to him and told him to leave his home, leave his people, and move to a place that he'd tell him where he was when he got there. And then God began to introduce himself to Abraham. And God, so God called Abraham. That's the thing I want you to see here. Here's the same pattern. God called Abraham, and he called Abraham and appointed him for a purpose. And the purpose for which God appointed Abraham was that he was to become a father of an entire nation of people that would have a covenant relationship with God, and then out of that covenant, many other nations, which are the Gentile world, which includes us. And God's purpose for this man's life, God's purpose for his calling, was that he would become a father of many nations. But there's a problem, because the man's 75 years old, and his wife's barren and 65 to boot. 65 doesn't seem so old anymore. It used to. 
but I found as I passed it, <laughs> and you look back on it, <laughs> it doesn't seem quite so old. But she was barren. She couldn't produce children, and God's calling and purpose for his life was to be the father of many nations. And God made it clear to him because when he called him, he says, Abraham, come here a second. Of course, his name was, was not Abraham yet. It was Abram. Come out here, night. Lie down in the stars. Look at the stars. Now, out in the desert where there's no lights around you, it's overwhelming to look at those stars. I've done that. I'm out in the deserts of Arizona at night. And you stop the car and you just get out there and you lie down, you lie down in the hood. You don't want to lie down in the desert. You, lie, you look up there and you just go, oh, wow. And he's looking at all those stars. His senses are filled with the number of the stars. This is vision. And God speaks to him and says, so shall your descendants be. Wow. And then his mind came back and says, well, wait a minute. Wait, uh, God? <laughs> God, um, my driver's license, have you seen the date of birth on there? You see that there? <clears throat> you, my wife, you know, back in the tent? You've, God, you've made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. So then they decide, well, they're going to help God out. Carry out his purpose. Now, there's a lesson in this. So his wife and he got together, and so she said, well, okay, since I can't have children, here's my servant. By the way, that was an established practice in that day. Here's my servant, Hagar. You can have relations with her. And she produced a son named Ishmael. And they brought Ishmael to God. Say, God, we knew your purpose. And here's the beginning. <laughs> and God says, it's by you and that woman believing my promise alone. And here's what I saw yesterday. Abraham was anointed to be the head of the Jewish family. And then through that, we're all sons of Abraham that have come through Christ. We'll talk about that later. But he didn't have the ability in himself to produce one child. He had the calling he had the assignment, but he didn't have the ability to carry it out. So he had to receive that ability from God and God alone. Let's talk about Moses. Moses was a man that God chose because at this point, Israel is in terrible bondage to Pharaoh. At Egypt, and they are under tremendous pressure and persecution. They're being used as slaves to produce his big cities, and 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 they're finally cried out for deliverance. They remembered the God of Abraham, and they cried out for deliverance. And God was already ahead of them, because 80 years before they cry out for deliverance, God calls a deliverer. See, God's timing is perfect. I didn't say it was what we like or what we think is good, but it's perfect. 
God chose Moses to be their deliverer as a little baby, protected him from Pharaoh's slaughter of the, of the, kids, of the young males because Pharaoh knew, had heard there would be a deliverer coming. So he slaughtered all the young boys from two years old of under. And God supernaturally protected this deliverer and caused him to be raised in Pharaoh's own house. And in that process, Pharaoh, be, I mean, Moses began to recognize that he was the deliverer. So he knew what his purpose was. He knew he was chosen by God and he knew what his purpose was, but he thought he had the ability in himself to carry out that purpose. So what he did is at one point when he sees a two, uh, sees a, a, um, uh, an Egyptian master uh, beating on two of his brethren, he kills the Egyptian's ma- uh, uh, slave uh, master, buries him in the sand, and then he comes back a few days later and says, "All right, let's go." But they hadn't cried out to God yet; they weren't ready. And neither was he. See, sometimes we think we're ready, but God knows when you're ready. And he says, let's go, I'm your deliverer. And they just kind of looked at him and says, are you going to do it to us, what you did to that Egyptian? And now he gets afraid and he flees for his life. Spends the next 40 years in the backside of the wilderness taking care of his father-in-law's sheep and goats comes around the corner one day up on this hill mountain he sees a bush we've talked about this before and the bush is glowing it looks like it's burning but it's not being consumed and he draws aside to this bush and inquires of it and the bush begins to speak to him and the pro- it was God call- God was confirming the call and then God said what's that rod in your hand That's the shepherd's rod. He'd relied upon this as his strength, as his protector, as his tool. It's the one thing he'd rely on. It's the only weapon he had. It's the only tool he had as a shepherd. So he learned to trust in it. And God said, what is that in your hand? He said, well, it's a rod. He said, throw it down. Now, out in the desert, when you've got wolves and things around, and you've got all these sheep to take care of, To get out of his hand is a scary thing. But God's saying, let go of that which you've trusted in. Your own strength, your own ability. (coughs) Cast it down. And as he cast it down, what happened to it? It turned into a snake. Now, what does a snake represent in the Bible? Sin and Satan. So the sin of his confidence in that rod manifested. Now God speaks to him and says, now pick it up again. But God was very specific about how. Pick it up by the tail. Now my youngest brother raised snakes. I don't mean garden snakes. I mean boa constrictors and pythons and things of that size. I learned that the way you pick that snake up is right behind the head because the head's the business end. If you've got them behind the head, you control where that mouth goes. 
if you grab him by the tail, that's the stupidest place to grab him. Because first of all, that means he knows where your hand is. I mean, it's one thing if you're standing there looking at him, talking to him or whatever. But God says, no, do the most dangerous possible thing. Reach down and take it by the tail. He's going to get angry. He'll know where your hand is, and you know what he's going to do. He's going to bring that venomous head around and bite you. But listen to this. But God said. God said. Pick it up by the tail. Just as God said, from your barren wife Sarah and your old wrinkled body, I'm going to give you a child. God said, pick it up by the tail. He's got to choose between his experience and his reasoning whether he's going to obey God or his own reason and his own experience. This is a test. But if you go through the test, you'll know God at a level that you didn't know before. Out of pure obedience, he reaches down and t- grabs that tail. And you know what happens. It turned immediately back into that rod. The difference now is the sin's gone out of the rod. He no longer trusts in the rod. He trusts in the God who gave him, oh, this is going to get good, who gave him the rod. And most of the miracles that God performs through Moses is through that rod. That rod was the tangible hose for the flow of the anointing of God through the man that God chose carry out God's purpose. But before God could trust him with that, his anointing and his power, he had to get Moses' trust out of the rod and get his trust in God's word. The anointing of God is the power of God ready to flow through the anointed one to carry out God's purpose. Now it's interesting because we see now that Jesus, God says about Jesus, he is the anointed one. So let's look at these factors in him. He was selected by God for a purpose. What was that purpose? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Of course, we know what's happened is God created the man and the woman. God gave them specific instructions. They violated those instructions. That's what the serpent, Satan, came to do. And now God turns to administer his judgment. 
Verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any cattle and more than any beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, not them, he, your seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise by God to redeem man after he'd sinned. God comes and calls for an accounting. Adam, where are you? What have you done? Have you eaten of the tree I told you not to eat of? And then Adam starts the common blame game. But my fault. It's either yours or hers. It's the woman you gave me. So it's either her fault or yours. I just know I'm... I'm the immanent bystander here. And God didn't buy that then and he still doesn't buy it today. And now God begins to talk to each of the parties. And he, now he talks to Satan and says, here's what's going to happen. There's going to come from this woman a seed down the line and this one's going to bruise your head. Now, if you bruise the head of something, you injure the head, you damage it beyond repair. He will bruise, you will bruise his foot. See, to bruise the foot only hobbles you from walking. To bruise the head, it's talking about a serious bruise, paralyzes you or destroys you. I was, I was meditating on this this morning, and a verse came to me. And we're not going to go off on this because we don't have time. But I just throw this seed out there. Just talking about seeds. Isaiah 53 says that, that um, he who knew no sin became sin. That, that, that he might, that's, I lost my train of thought. I know that verse so well. I'm going to go there. Isaiah 53. Surely, he, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. God said, you'll bruise his heel. Jesus was bruised. The bruise that he received was the payment for our sin. But he said, he will bruise or destroy your head. First John chapter 3 verse 8 says, for this purpose was this, in the King James it says, for the purpose was the Son of God manifest that he might destroy the works of the evil one. Yes, Jesus came to die on the cross, but the Dying on the cross was the means of accomplishing his purpose. His purpose was to come and destroy the work of Satan that he had brought into this earth and into mankind. And to redeem man that was now in his grasp because of what he'd done. Jesus came to win us back 
out of the kingdom of darkness so that we could be transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what he came for. And that's what he accomplished. So that was his purpose. Because he's the anointed one, that means he's been chosen by someone. And the one that chose him was God the Father, God the Creator, God the ultimate authority. And God gave him the purpose and the assignment of coming here and destroying and defeating Satan and his work in this earth. In order to do that, he had to take our sins upon himself and pay for them so that he could legally buy us back. To redeem something is to buy it back. To buy something back means you pay a price for it. And that's what he came to do. Turn me to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14. Inasmuch as the children, that's us, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death, his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The root of all bondage is fear. And the root of fear is the fear of death. 1 John chapter 4 says that, that perfect love, perfected love, matured love, the knowledge of his love and what he's done for us casts out fear because fear involves punishment. It's the fear of being punished for what we've done wrong that causes us to, that's the root of all fear ultimately, and it's the fear we're going to have to stand in front of God and give an account for our sin, which scares the living daylights out of us, literally. That's why the world's view right now is trying to get rid of God, because their way of handling this fear is to pretend God doesn't exist. Well, if God doesn't exist, I don't have to stand in front of him. Therefore, I write books that say there is no God. And you can write all those books and you want, but God's already written his book. By the way, his book says if you say there's no God, you're a fool. That's God's definition of a fool is someone who says there's no God. Because I want to see them stand before him and say there's no God. So one way of dealing with this fear is to pretend God doesn't exist and therefore I don't have to stand in front of him. Right before we were saved, we were kind of struggling and looking for kind of answers to life and got a hold of a book that said, I'm okay, you're okay. Some of you remember, remember that. And I read that book and just laughed. Because the way the book works is I look at Phyllis and say, Phyllis, you're okay. And we've already made a deal because Phyllis is going to look back at me and says, well, Pastor John, you're okay. So we've all agreed we're both okay. The problem is we both know we're not. That's like the old story that the, emperor, the, emperor, the emperor's clothes, 
the emperor, you know, the, 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 everybody, the emperor had no clothes, but everybody wanted to, he wanted everybody to pretend he had beautiful clothes. So everybody in the kingdom said, oh, what a beautiful robe you have. He paraded down there, what a beautiful robe. Except one kid stood up and said, he's not wearing any clothes. And that exposed everybody. And that's what's going on in the world today. They're trying to get rid of God because if God's there, they're, they're going to be afraid because they're going to stand before him guilty. Amen. Well, God's provided another way to handle it. And that's he sent his son to destroy the works of the enemy. So well, if he came to destroy the works of the enemy, how come I'm still wrestling with him? He destroyed their power, but now you have to learn to walk out his victory in your life. That's why we have to renew our mind to what that book says. So this is what Jesus' purpose was. He went to the cross to accomplish that purpose. But his purpose was to destroy the works of the evil one. And to do that, God gave him his ability, his anointing, to overcome the enemy. If you go back into Luke, you'll find... Uh, well, let's, yeah, let's do that. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke. We're talking about what it means that he is the Messiah, the, the Christ. What does that mean and what does it mean to us? Let's look first of all at Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus comes down and is baptized in the Jordan River. Verse 21, And all the people were baptized. It came to pass that Jesus was baptized while he prayed. Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove upon him. It didn't say he's a dove. That's the way he descended. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Chapter 4 Starts out, then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was delivered from the evil one. No, it says, returned in the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by the devil. What's that all about? I thought the Lord's Prayer says, deliver us from evil, and now the Spirit of God's bringing him into direct contact with Satan. Why? Because he was training him because now you have God dwelling in flesh. He's never done that before. You and I know what it's like to live in flesh and have to deal with temptations. Now the Son of God has to learn how to exercise authority over the temptations that come at His flesh because temptation only comes at you through your senses. And what was being tested here was the anointing. Because we'll learn later as we study who he is that he set aside all of his attributes as the Son of God, the second person of the God. He set those all aside and left them in heaven, Philippians chapter 2. And he came to this earth, was born, he was God, but he left all that divine power in heaven. He left all that divine power in heaven and came to this earth and was born as a baby. And then at the moment it was time to begin his purpose... He's led to the Jordan River and God pours the real oil upon him. The Spirit of the living God anoints him. 
And the first thing he's led to do by the anointing is to go into the wilderness and learn how to exercise that anointing in the face of direct temptation from Satan. That's the very thing Adam failed to do. Adam was confronted by the devil with temptation and yielded to it. The second Adam comes, anointed by God to carry out the purpose of winning back, of defeating what Satan had done. And he has to be confronted by that same Satan again. Because he has to win that battle. He wins the battle, first of all, all alone in that wilderness with just Satan and the anointing. Now, we're sitting here having had breakfast, thinking of lunch. <laughs> and we can talk about this. But Satan waited till he hadn't eaten for 40 days. Now, some of our teens just finished not eating for 30 hours. I saw them yesterday. You could see them kind of, they were doing great because you could, you could tell. Because when you begin a fast, you go through that time. And he was being trained to rely upon the anointing in the face of temptation, just as Moses was being trained to rely upon the anointing when he picked up that snake by the tail, just as Abraham was tested to rely upon the anointing. Jesus had to be tested to rely upon the anointing and not upon his own efforts and his own flesh. So when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, that's the beginning of what's involved in that term.